Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. I just want to welcome you here. We're glad to have you here with us. We're in, um, actually, uh, we're in, in, in part two of a series titled Portraits of Christianity. And, and we've subtitled this series, Living Images of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because as Christians, we are called to be those living images of Jesus in the world around us. We are to reflect the image of, of, of Jesus because we're called to be, as, as Paul says, conformed to, into the image of the Son of God. Who, by the way, has, is the, the, the visible image of the invisible God. God, which means, okay, that, that, that we are actually being transformed and conformed into the very image of not a man, but actually God himself. You know, our lives would be transformed to reflect the very nature and character of God, which was God's plan from the very beginning for us. Because if you'll remember, uh, God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. We were created in the image of God. We were created to be reflections of Him here on earth. Uh, but that image has, um, was distorted and lost when sin entered the world. Sin you know, has distorted us and misshapen and broken the image of God in us. And we no longer then reflect uh, what, what it looks like to be the image of God in, in His character. And so the remedy for that, the fix for that, God sent His Son Jesus um, to redeem us and to save us and to shape us and to remold us back into his image. God sent his son to restore what was broken and lost to begin with. God sent Jesus to be the teacher and our visible example, a real life example so that we can pattern our lives after him and so we can become spiritually mature. And so, uh, and in fact, even uh, Paul says, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which, again, was the plan from the very beginning. God, it was God's plan from the very beginning that we reflect His nature and His character. And it is still His plan today. God wants us to be remade into living images of Jesus Christ. God wants all of us to once again reflect the nature and the character of God in the world around us. And so that, you know, so that we as His children, he wants it because we as his children can then influence everyone that we come in contact with for the cause of Christ. And so in this series, that's what it's all about. How do we do that? That's what it's about. How do we do that? How do we become conformed into the image of Christ? What does that look like? Because there's lots of different ideas and lots of different expressions and interpretations of what it means to be a Christ follower. There are a lot of preconceived ideas that are driven by culture, and the media and geography and even even history has has given us preconceived ideas of what it means to be a Christ follower. In fact, in the 15th and the 16th centuries, Christians, both Catholics and Protestants, deeply disagreed about what this looks like. And because of that, they resorted to physical violence, physical violence to answer this, this question. They would actually take turns as they came into power, persecuting and torturing and killing each other, you know, in order for their perspective of what Christianity looks like to be the dominant view of the land. Now, a perfect example of this is what is known as the Guy um, Fox plot or the, or the gunpowder plot. Now, most people don't even know what that is. They don't even know who Guy Fox was, but most people recognize this mask right here, okay? Hey, who's seen this mask before? All right, yeah, this is, this is part of pop- popular culture. This is the, similar to the mask that was worn by the main character in the movie V is for Vendetta, okay? And this mask is also the symbol of the hacker group Anonymous, 
who threatens uh, governments and corporations with cyber attacks. And in our modern culture, this mask has become a symbol for, for our youth as a symbol of rebellion and anarchy and a symbol of their, their generation. But this mask right here is actually based on the supposed image of a Frenchman named Guy Fawkes. And Guy Fawkes was one of several conspirators who attempted to overthrow the English government. In fact, the story goes like this. There were several conspirators who devised a plan. And what they did was they acquired a building and they began to dig and tunnel. And they tunneled underneath the House of Lords. And the plan was is they were going to actually have um, you know, uh, barrels of big barrels of gunpowder smuggled in there, which they did. They, they, they they smuggled many barrels of uh, gunpowder underneath the, the Parliament building, and, and Guy Fawkes was supposed to, to light the fuse while Parliament was in session, thereby blowing up the House of Lords and all of Parliament with it, effectively removing the ruling class of England in one fell swoop. Well, fortunately, the plot was discovered, and the plan was foiled, and all the conspirators were arrested and executed. But you have to understand that this plot, even though that it maybe had a number of political reasons for it, the one thing uniting all the conspirators together was one thing, and it was their faith. They were Catholics trying to tear down the Protestant government because of the persecution that the Catholics were facing in England. They were going to blow up the entire parliament building, killing all of its members and all the innocent civilians in the area, all in the name of Jesus. Okay? And this kind of violence went back and forth for centuries, all rooted in, in, in the perspective of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, there has been and there will always continue to be some distorted understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And so in this series, that's what this is about, answering this question. All right, what does it actually look like to follow Christ? And so to answer this question, what we've decided to do as much as possible, we're going to try to look past culture. We're going to try to look past what the media says. We're going to try to look past what tradition says. And we're going to, we're going to look directly at the Word of God and see for ourselves what it actually looks like to be conformed and shaped into the image of Christ. Because that right there is where the answers actually are. The answers are in God's revealed word to us, particularly the New Testament. And I'm going to encourage you, as I always do, to make it your mission to read it. All. To read all of it. You need to read the entire New Testament, and at some point you need to read the entire Bible because that is how you're going to find out what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus, is by reading the Word of God. Now, the purpose, now for the purposes of this series, all right, we're going to actually concentrate all of our time and our efforts on perhaps one of the best sources of what it means to follow Jesus, which is the book of Luke, and it's going to be chapter number six. In fact, for some, Luke chapter six can be, has been called the Christ follower chapter. Because in this chapter, Jesus gives us some very clear examples and some very clear uh, commands of how to follow him. This, in this chapter, Jesus covers a lot of ground and how we should live our lives in, in an effort to become more and more like him. And so last week we began actually this series by, by laying the foundation of everything that we're going to talk about today and in the weeks to come. In fact, Keith is actually uh, going to be teaching next week um, on on prayer in the way that Jesus, what he has to say about that. Uh, but we're, we're, we've basically built on this foundation, um, you know, what we talked about last week, which is the end of, of Luke. And he says what Jesus starts off with, or he wraps up the, the, uh, the chapter with it, really an important question. And what he, what he asks is, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's a huge, huge question. I mean, why would you call me Lord or God or Master but not do what I say? 
I mean, why would you call yourself by my name? Why would you call yourself a Christian and say that you belong to me, but not do the things that I tell you to do or live up to the example that I give you? Why would you do that? Okay? You see, the foundation of being a Christ follower is becoming obedient to what Christ says to do and to do what Jesus did by example. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to follow him. And so he is the master. We ourselves are the apprentices. Our goal is to be like him. And in order to do that, we need to be willing to do what he says to do. And we need to be willing to do what he does himself. And so the foundation of following Christ is obedience to his word. Being willing to be obedient to do what Jesus says and following him wherever he leads. Now, we're not talking... I want to be clear, we're not talking about being saved by works. It's not what we're talking about even close. But we are talking about following Jesus because we've already have been saved. Salvation should motivate us to want to follow Jesus and become more like Him. It's a natural byproduct of being redeemed. Once you understand what the score is, it should be a natural byproduct to want to be like Him. And so the foundation of being a Christ follower, then, is doing what Jesus says and following His example. And from that foundation, we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at what Jesus said and what Jesus did in an effort to learn uh, to be more like Him. And, 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 And like I said... We've got a lot of ground to cover uh, over the next several weeks. And so where I want to start today is I want to begin uh, at the, actually the beginning of Luke chapter 6. And, and in the beginning, there are a couple of, of real quick stories um, at the first part of uh, Luke chapter 6 that I think they're a really good place for us to actually kind of jump off today. And so what I want to do is well, I want to read for you real quick the story so we kind of have a grasp of what's happening. And then what we'll do is we'll just kind of like zero in on the passage and we'll kind of take the text apart and examine it up close. And then we'll see what we can learn from Christ and how we can then apply it to our lives. And so here we go. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, and so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the, to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, this text right here, for many Christians, including me for years, is one of those texts you just kind of read, you know, and you read through it, uh, and you read it kind of like you're just trying to get to the next section, okay? It's one of those kind of sections that you, you, you tend to want to skip. And the reason is this text is kind of confusing. I mean, we read it and we're like, um, yeah, I really don't know exactly what's going on here. 
Okay? I mean, you have these guys walking through a grain field. They pluck some grain and they eat it. And for some reason, that's against the law, you know, which, which doesn't make any sense to me. But Jesus then speaks up and he refers to some distant past event where, where David then ate some bread that belonged to some priests. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm going, okay, yeah, I'm really tracking there. But I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure what happens here. But, 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 but I read it. So, and now that I've read it, I can move on, right? Pastor says, I need to read my Bible. So I read it. But even though I don't understand it, I'm, I'm past it. Okay, and then, then then the next event is another strange one where Jesus is preaching on the Sabbath. There's a man with a withered up hand, you know, and, and I don't know exactly what withered means, but we you, we can assume it's either really broken or disfigured or diseased, and obviously he's he's not able to use it, right? And, and so Jesus asks a strange question: Is it lawful to do good or harm, or save a life or destroy it? And we're like, um, yeah. Do good. Yeah, that's what you should do. And then Jesus heals them. And then the religious people, you know, they're, they're mad at him, right? And we're like, what's going on here? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, we kind of skip over this because we're just not, you know, sure that this really makes sense to us. So we read it and kind of pass over it. And then another reason we struggle with this text is because many of our Bibles have kind of like these subheadings like, like this. Okay, and, and, and for the most part, these subheadings are actually kind of helpful because they break the chapters up in a, in a bite-sized chunks, you know, kind of smaller sections. And sometimes they, they draw your attention to a theological point that's being made. Uh, sometimes they help identify important events. And sometimes when you have a chapter that has multiple events, it actually breaks it out into the individual events so you can identify that. In fact, that's actually what's happening here. The subheadings, you know, uh, are identifying that these are two separate events, and that's fine. But the problem is these subheadings kind of give you this sense that because they're separate, they're really not related or connected to one another. And so you have Jesus doing something on one day, and then on another day you have Jesus doing something else. And it seems like the author Luke is addressing two different points by two different, you know, separate events. But it's not the case here. Even though they're two separate events, they're actually completely intimately related. They are actually related because the author put them together, you know, to cover the same subject. In fact, these two events are so important that they're included also in, in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark because of the, their value in, in, in what they're trying to communicate about Jesus. And together, these two points communicate a really big, important point. Uh, but, but the subheadings that we find our Bible kind of like kind of confuses that because you know we, we we think that maybe they're unrelated or they're separate points, and so that's confusing for us. And then the final reason why this text kind of confuses us is because the central point of both of these passages has to do with the Sabbath day. Okay, both of these events are about the Sabbath day, and that's the, what connects them. And so the theme that connects them is something that we're really just not familiar with. I mean, obviously, Luke and Matthew and Mark, you know, you know, they, they have something to say about this and, and something to communicate about the Sabbath day. But for us Christians, it's a subject we just don't, we just don't spend a lot of time talking about. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Sabbath day. In fact, most Christians, the idea of Sabbath is almost irrelevant because... We're not observant Jews. We're not, you know, Messianic Christians. The idea of the Sabbath day, for the most part for Christians, is simply just kind of part of Jewish ceremonial law. And so we read this section, we're like, you know, we just kind of want to skip over it. You know, and, and, and the first part of Luke is just this part of the Bible that we read to kind of get through to the next part. But we actually do this. To, to our own detriment, because in these two stories, there's a whole lot that, that we can learn about who Jesus is. And we can learn a lot about what it means to follow him 
and to live by his words and his example. But before we jump in there and talk about that um, and start looking at these things, I need to take a moment. I need to explain a couple things. In order to fully grasp what's happening here, we really need to understand the cultural context surrounding these events. Because there's something that's happening. There's something at work in this story. In both of these stories, it's causing people to react and behave the way they do. You see, this isn't just simply a story of Jesus and some evil religious people, all right? This is a story of Jesus and some people who are sincerely trying to follow God to the best of their ability. We need to get that straight, okay? This isn't a story about Jesus and some evil religious people that are trying to hold people down. This is a story about Jesus and some people who sincerely are trying to the best of their ability to follow God. And the problem is they're misguided, Okay? They are misguided because they're trying to follow tradition and religious prescriptions to appease God rather than oper- opening their hearts to a relationship with God. Now, it's easy for us to stand here you know, over 2,000 years ago with 2020 vision and to look down on people and think, what a bunch of buffoons. How could they possibly not see the truth? Jesus was right there. How could they be so hearted and not see the truth that Jesus was telling them? But the truth is... We tend to be more like the Pharisees than we'd like to admit. We all probably have a little bit of that in us. Probably more than we care to admit. So before we judge them, let's try to understand them and where they're coming from. You see, all this begins about 500 years earlier. The Jews, God's chosen people, because they failed to follow God over and over and over and over again. They They failed to obey His law. God allowed the nation of Israel and Judah to be taken into exile. Their nation was destroyed, and they were taken into exile into a foreign country. And they were in exile for like 70 years, away from their homeland, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. You know, in fact, the temple was destroyed. A huge part of their national and religious identity was cut off for them because they were in exile. And because they were in exile, they, they were in exile because they failed to follow God and keep His law. But eventually, by the grace and the sovereignty of God's will, He allowed them to return home and to begin to rebuild their lives again. And the city of Jerusalem and the temple were, were, who were central to their faith and worship, they began to be rebuilt. They rebuilt their lives. They, re, they, they, they rebuilt their, their culture. They restored proper worship. And the Jewish people at that time experienced a revival. They were on fire for God. And they began to take seriously the idea of following the law. And they knew that if, 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 that if God was going to bless them and that if God was going to keep them in the land and not send them into exile again. They had to wholeheartedly follow him and and, and they would have to be serious about about holiness and keeping the law just like Moses told them and just like Joshua reminded them hundreds of years before. And so it was out of sincere good intentions of Jewish people began to try to live by the law because they wanted so bad to please God. They wanted to follow Him. They wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And so they committed themselves to following Moses. And they committed themselves to to living holy lives. But the problem is, is the law of Moses, as comprehensive as it may be, doesn't cover every tiny little possibility. It doesn't cover every possible situation that that a person found themselves in. For example, the law of Moses said that the Jews were not to work on the Sabbath day, that they were to rest. In fact, the Ten Commandments, you know, in the Ten Commandments that, that God gave through Moses, it says this, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Which seems pretty simple, right? Don't go to work on the Sabbath day, right? Don't go to the fields and plow the ground, right? Don't pull any weeds. Don't do the dishes. Don't do laundry. You know, just rest on the Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. It's a day where you're supposed to take it easy and connect with God. And it seems pretty straightforward, right? But the problem is that there are people, you know, who, who, who miss the purpose of the law and they begin to point out all the little gray areas because there's gray area in everything. Okay, but, but, but they point out the gray area in, in this law. For every rule and law, there's always going to be some kind of gray area. And for the Jewish life, there was gray area what, of what work actually meant and what work wasn't. And so, uh, like, um, like, what about cooking? All right? Is, is, cook, is cooking work? Can I cook on the Sabbath day? I mean, my family has to eat. I mean, God doesn't want my, my, my family to starve, right, on the Sabbath. So can I cook on the Sabbath day? Well, no. You can't. You can't cook on the Sabbath day because cooking is work. Just ask your mom. She'll tell you. Okay? Right. I mean, we've all heard the slaving over the stove thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's work. So you cannot cook on the Sabbath. So you need to prepare all of your meals ahead of time on the Sabbath if you're going to eat food on the Sabbath day. Well, wait a minute. My family doesn't like, you know, the, the food to be cold. In fact, a lot of the food that we make, especially in Jewish culture, is terrible when it's cold. So what am I supposed to do then? Well, then you can heat up your food. As long as it's already prepared. Heating up your food isn't technically working. You're just kind of like just putting it there and it warms itself up, right? So you can heat your food up. And that, that's great. You know, we can heat my food up. But, but, but you got to remember, you have to heat your food up on a fire that's already burning before the Sabbath started or coals that were already going because, you know, creating fire is work, right? And, and, and you might think this is really, but, but this rule still exists today for observant Jews. Even today, that's, that's why high-end appliance manufacturers build ovens with a Sabbath setting, okay? They're called, they're, they're called Sabbath-compliant ovens because there's a timer that automatically, before the Sabbath start, uh, turns on and warms up the oven, and it stays warm all the way through the Sabbath, and as soon as it's over, just after it's over, it turns itself off because... It's against Sabbath law to turn on an oven, which is lighting a fire in some sense. Okay, It's, it's unlawful to, 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 to turn on an oven on the Sabbath because that's considered work. And over the years, the Jews began to create hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these rules to clearly define and get rid of all the gray air of what work is and what work isn't. And do you know why they did that? They're just trying to obey the law. That's why they were doing it. They, 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 it started off as something good. Do you understand that? This wasn't like an insidious plan of some people to enslave a nation. This, they were trying actually to just do something good. We want to please God. We want to obey the law. So we're going to create some guidelines to help us uh, to, to keep the law. We're going to create some rules or some guardrails to help us you know, keep the law and so that we're pleasing to God. But over time, you know, they added one rule to the next. And then over time, those rules weren't simply guidelines anymore. They became tradition. And then tradition became the standard. And over time, that standard became law on par with the revealed law that God himself gave. 
And, and during the time of Jesus, this was especially serious because Israel at the time was no longer a sovereign nation. They were enslaved by the Romans. They were a slave nation under the Roman Empire because obviously they had failed to keep God's law. And so they were suffering the consequences of that. And so there's this renewed vigor to keep the law, especially the religious class who were running around like the religious police making sure people were obeying the law. And to make matters worse, everyone knew that, that God had promised you know, a deliverer, a Messiah. And the rabbis were teaching at the time that the Messiah could not come. You know, He could not come and save Israel until they had perfectly kept the Sabbath. That's why this was such a big deal to them. That the, they were teaching that the Messiah absolutely was not able to come and rescue them from, from the, 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 the yoke of, of foreign nations as long as Israel didn't keep the, perfectly, the, the Sabbath perfectly. And so obviously, Sabbath law was very important both personally and also nationally. So this was a very serious issue to them. And so it's no wonder you have a bunch of guys running around telling people, that's illegal, don't do that, that's wrong, you can't do that. Because you, you can't do that on the Sabbath. The, the, you, know, you can't carry anything on the Sabbath because that's considered work. You can't cook on the Sabbath. You can't sweep the floor on the Sabbath. You can't pick up a rock on the Sabbath, even if it's in your way. Now, your kid can pick up a rock and play with it, but you can't pick up your kid who has a rock in his hand because you theoretically, technically, have picked up the rock, and you're, now you're doing work. And as strange as it may seem to us, you have to understand this was, this was really a serious, desperate situation. You have a Jewish nation enslaved to an oppressive Roman government, and the religious leaders believe with all their hearts that this is a result of a nation turning away from God, and the only remedy you know, to their struggle is for the Messiah to come, but he can't do that until you obey the Sabbath perfectly. Can you see why they were so high-strung about this? Can you see why you know, that this was a big issue to them? Sabbath was really important to them. This wasn't a trivial religious thing that they just wanted to beat people up about. This was gravely important to them. And so with that understanding, let's kind of re-examine what's happening here. Okay, Luke chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But, the, but some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful? On the Sabbath. Let me stop right here. Let me just explain this, okay? There's a couple of things that you got to understand about this exchange. First of all, it is not, it was not illegal for the disciples to, to walk into a field and eat some of the grain that was in the field. Jewish law was such that farmers were required to allow people to actually go in who were hungry and eat. Now, they couldn't actually take food and put it in their pockets and save it for later because that, that, that was thievery, okay? But but if they were hungry, if they were legitimately hungry, they could actually eat in the field and they were to stay in the field and eat what they needed to sustain, to sustain them. They could actually stay right there, eat in the field and eat until they were satisfied. And that was perfectly legal. Another thing to understand is that eating the grain in the field was not like a treat for them. All right. They didn't do this because it tasted good. All right. This was not a delicacy. They were hungry. They were doing this because they were hungry. In fact, you know, uh, eating this kind of grain was unappealing for the most part. It, it didn't taste good. They did this for one simple reason. They were hungry. They'd been on the road with Jesus, and, and they hadn't been eaten so well. And there was no leftover provisions for them to eat. Okay? They ate raw heads of grain to kind of satisfy them. That was completely legal. So why do the Pharisees, why do they have such a big problem with this? Well, the problem was not because they ate. The problem was is because 
as I said before, they could eat the grain. The problem was is they, they had to pick it. They had to pick the grain, which was considered harvesting, okay, which was work. And then, they, then it says that they rubbed the grain in their hands, which is also considered work. Okay? I mean, let me explain. Okay, grain, you know, it still had the husk on it. And so what they had to do, you know, which would, and the husk is really not the edible part of the grain. So they had to rub it, they had the grain in their hands to break loose that husk so they can actually eat the kernels. And this rubbing action and removing the husk was viewed under Jewish sabbatical law as threshing or sifting grain, again, which was considered work. That's why they were so upset. They're, they're seeing these guys like, we'll never, ever, we'll never, ever, you know, ever practice the, the, the Sabbath perfectly. I mean, they were upset because what they were doing was technically in their minds what was wrong with Israel to start with. Okay? And so because of this, and because they saw this in such a gravely important light, they were, in, they were completely inflexible about it. It didn't matter to them that they were hungry. It would have mattered if they were on the verge of starvation. They didn't care. The Pharisees, there was no reason for the Pharisees, there was no reason to justify working on the Sabbath and picking and rubbing grain according to their rules was work. But notice, Jesus doesn't argue with them about the technicality of working. Because he could have. In fact, he could have said, well, wait a minute. Who said that rubbing grain in your hands to feed yourself is work? You religious people are the ones that made that up. I mean, you religious people, the ones who are saying that, I mean, look in God's word, it doesn't say anything about that. That's just how you interpreted God's word. But it doesn't say that. But Jesus didn't argue that point. Instead, he argues something completely different. He says, have you read that, that David, when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus is challenging the Pharisees on their own game and he appeals to, to not some rules that were made up by religious people. He actually appeals to Scripture itself. He refers to a story in Scripture that they know. A story where David, while on the run from Saul, went into some priests and asked for food. And all they had was a special kind of bread called bread of the presence, which is bread that, that, that according to Levitical law was only to be eaten by priests. And so Jesus is saying, well, hang on a second. With your man-made interpretation of the law, just hang on there, because don't you remember when David was desperately hungry and he ate the bread that only priests should eat? David actually broke the law. David actually broke the written command. Not what somebody said the interpretation was. He broke the command itself. But nobody has a problem with that. David actually broke the written law of Moses, but nobody has a problem with that. Why? Well, because David was in dire need. He had a physical need. And the priests and David, a man after God's own heart, understood that a physical need is more important than keeping some religious ritual. They knew it, and you know it. That's why you don't contend, David. Meeting a physical need such as hunger is more important than keeping a religious ritual. Now, if you, if it was okay for David because of his hunger, that he actually broke the law that was written in Scripture, why do you condemn these men of breaking a man-made rule because of their hunger? You see, it wasn't about the technical, legal, or the illegal thing. It was about their heart. 
They were so consumed with keeping the law and so consumed with keeping the rules that they neglected what was truly important. They neglected the fact that there was a real physical need. These men were hungry. They needed to be fed. Um, By the way, these Pharisees, they didn't try to solve the problem by actually feeding them, right? They, they didn't actually help to like keep these guys from breaking the law. They just, you know, they didn't do anything to help except stand there and, and, and you know, look down their noses and condemn them, right? Now, before we get on our high horses and get judgmental about what these Pharisees are doing, let us remember the church in America has exactly that kind of reputation with so many people. The church is known to be very quick to condemn and point out you know, all the faults and all, everything that we're against and, and slow to help and solve the problem. It's kind of the reason why a lot of people don't come to church. It's kind of, the, you know, it's kind of why you know, when someone says to Christians, you guys are hypocrites, we don't really argue a lot about it because we kind of know they're right. On some level, we kind of know that's the truth. Well, that's where the Pharisees were. They were interested in keeping the rules even at the expense of people. And that's the heart of the issue. In fact, we see this in the next story too. It says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, which in their minds was was work. And so they they might find a reason to accuse him because... You know, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Remember, he just said that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, which he was claiming to be the Messiah. So he couldn't possibly be the Messiah that we're looking for if he breaks the Sabbath, even if he, you know, even if he just said that he was just the Son of Man. In verse 8 it says, And he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Now, let's just let's look at this question. This is oftentimes some of the best and most important things that Jesus communicates is not in a, in a statement, but a question. Why does he say this? Why does he say, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? See, Jesus is making a very huge point. Keeping the Sabbath is good and right. That's what they were supposed to do. But so is helping people. In fact, helping people, healing people, preserving someone's life are actually a greater good. This isn't a question of what's good or bad. It's what's good and what's a better good. But on the other hand, not helping some people, even though we have the capacity to help someone, is actually wrong. It's actually a sin. In fact, even Jewish culture saw it as wrong. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus asked, if a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, are you just going to leave it there? Are you going to rescue it? Of course you're going to rescue it because to leave it there would be wrong and you know it. It's the same thing if you see someone fall down and you refuse to help them because you don't want to be late for church. It's just wrong. If you see someone drowning but you refuse to give them help, you know, that's wrong. If it's in your capacity to help, you should help. Even if it means you have to break a ceremonial law. Because there's a greater good at stake. Jesus is asking, is it, is it lawful to do good? I mean, it, it, you know, and healing this man would have been an incredible, incredible good to him. Or would it be better to do harm? And if I leave this man here, if I just leave him like he is, I'm actually harming him. So which is better? Which is lawful? Now notice, they didn't have the courage to answer him though. They didn't answer what he had to say because they didn't know what to say to him. They just 
were silent because they knew they were trapped. And then Jesus says, and after looking around at them, all he said, after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. What a wonderful act of compassion and mercy. Somebody that's been crippled for a long time. Unable to use his hand in a culture where, you know, two hands were valuable because that's how you made your living. But then look how the Pharisees respond. It says, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Just think about this. A man in the synagogue is there listening to the message of Jesus. And he has a visible, physical deformity. He is physically broken in some way. His hand is withered. And again, I don't know exactly what that means, but when I looked up the word, the Greek word there, is this idea that his hand was kind of like, um, was like shrunken up or dried up. Okay, so his hand was obviously misshapen. Obviously it was wrinkled up and it was useless. And so here's this man who has been suffering and he has this useless hand and Jesus takes the time to heal him. It's a miracle. This man's physical deformity is completely, 100% restored. Right before their eyes. His hand's useless one minute, and then the next minute it's completely functional. What a glorious, glorious act of kindness and grace. What a wonderful miracle. But these men don't think. Praise God. They don't think. What a wonderful thing we just witnessed. What a wonderful thing that God has done. I said they say they're filled up with fury. They're burning with anger. Jesus performs a miracle and they're burning up with anger. They're like, how dare he? Here's this man claiming to be the Messiah. And here he is, you know, working on the Sabbath. How dare he make a statement like that? You see, they were blinded. They were blinded to the rules and rule keeping. And they were focused on keeping, you know, the, the rules so much that they were they missed the point. <clears throat> and again, before we get too judgmental, let me just share with you just a real short video that might kind of put this in perspective. I remember the moment I gave my life to God. I remember the year, the month, the day, the hour. I remember the location even the smell of the room. These memories, they're tattooed on my mind. Over the next few weeks, I began to walk in a joy and a hope that I hadn't experienced before. It was a new reality for me. I had come face to face with Jesus. I could see him clearly. Over the next year, I learned that being a Christian wasn't as easy as I thought. It turned out that there were a lot of things I should do and a lot of things I shouldn't do. Things I should say and things I shouldn't say. Man, I sure did learn a lot. And then one day I ran into an old acquaintance. He asked me why I had chosen to become a Christian. The strange thing is, I couldn't remember. In Luke chapter 6, there's a story of Jesus being accused by the Pharisees of breaking the laws of the Sabbath. His disciples, being hungry, had picked grain in a field on one of their journeys. Now, at that time, Jewish legal tradition had 39 categories of activities that were forbidden on the Sabbath, and harvesting was one of them. 
The Pharisees had composed such a lengthy list of do's and don'ts around God's commandment. And that's interesting because the commandment itself is quite clear. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It was a day designed to draw men closer to God, but with all of these regulations, the Pharisees had created a barrier that prevented them from seeing clearly. Jesus' response, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Today, when people ask me why I'm a Christian, I know. How about you? Is there something preventing you from seeing Jesus clearly? Can anybody identify with that? I know I can. Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying the Sabbath is about me. The Sabbath isn't about rules or keeping the regulations. It's about a relationship with the Savior. In fact, in Mark, in his gospel, in chapter 2, uh, it covers the same story, but um, it, about the, the disciples going through the grain field, but, but they records Jesus saying this to the Pharisees. He says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, what Jesus is trying to say here is the point of the Sabbath isn't to follow a bunch of rules. The point is to give mankind rest. It's to give him time to, to have clarity of heart and to draw near Christ. I mean, that's why we work, right? I mean, we, we, we work to have time to spend with the, those that we love and we care about. That's why the weekends are so important to so many people. That's why we take vacations to slow down, to connect and build relationships and spend time with those that we love and that we care about. That's what the Sabbath is supposed to be about. Stop your busy life, take a day off, rest your body and your mind, connect with God, enjoy His presence, connect with other people in fellowship, and you can't do that meaningfully. You can't meaningfully collect, connect with God and other people if you're always on the go and you're always working. So you need to stop and, and connect. That's what the Sabbath is about. It's about relationships, a relationship with God, a God who loves you and knows what you need. But <clears throat> it's about relationships with the Pharisees. They missed it, and they made it all about a religion. They forgot the whole point of the Sabbath, as well as the law, was to draw them into a deeper relationship with God. But in the process of trying to please God and follow Him, they kind of constructed this religious system and rules and regulation that became an end in itself, instead of a means to the end. You see, it ceased to be about relationships and it became about religion. People began keeping rules to prove how religious they were. And instead of using them as a guidelines to help them to have a personal, intimate walk with God. And before, you know, we can stand in judgment of these Pharisees, we need to really be careful and examine our hearts. Because the truth is, we as Christians can fall into this exact same trap. Christians are known to create kind of like rules and regulations that a person's, you know, that regulates a person's religious activity. And the better you keep the rules, the more spiritual you are, the more righteous you might, might be, right? 
And suddenly faith you know, you know, in Christ is about the clothes we wear and the music we listen to. And it becomes, you know, how many services you attend and how many Bible verses you memorize. And, and following Jesus is about, you know, making sure everyone around you sees that you're all put together and that you've got it all under control and no one's allowed to see your faults. It becomes living up to an image that's based on some man-made expectations. And we see it all the time. In fact, I'll never forget, uh, and I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. There's this little old lady I knew in Bakersfield, and, and, and she grew up in church, and she seemed to be like the sweetest person you'd ever meet. But she absolutely could not stand her grandson's wife. And the reason why is because is her, her um, granddaughter-in-law, if you will, she just didn't like deal with leftovers, and so she threw the leftovers away. And that really bothered her, right? Because she grew up in an era believing that if you throw away food, it was a sin. Now, you could probably make a case for the fact that God doesn't want us to be wasteful. He wants us to be good stewards, all right? You know, and he wants us to take care of resources like food. But you cannot make a case for destroying a relationship over something like that. But instead, this grandma was interested in, 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 in her perspective of Christian law rather than her relationship with her own family. And we see it all the time. I read, you know, the story. In fact, I read a story just recently of a lady who attended church for 50 years. 50 years, the same church. And she was kicked out because while she was in the hospital, she didn't have the money to pay her tithe. And they gave her the boot. 50 years in the same church. And they kicked her out because she didn't pay her tithe because she's in the hospital. Now, before we judge, you got to remember this church right here in Boron was guilty of some similar things. I mean, there's a point that, you know, worshiping the Lord here at First Baptist Church meant that women had to wear a dress, okay? And that men were kind of expected to wear nice pants and a collared shirt, you know, to prove that you're religious in some way. And, and if you had a tie, that was even better. It meant that you were really, you know, up and coming in your, your, your relationship with God. And you, had to follow, you had to demonstrate to people, you know, how close to Jesus you were by what, how you wore and as much as I would like to act like that I'm above that, I'm absolutely not. In fact, I remember there was a time uh, when, I, when I was living down south and I was working down south. Uh, one afternoon, I, uh, every afternoon for about a week, I stopped at this particular Starbucks uh, between appointments. Uh, and I got an iced tea. And, uh, and, and, I, and every day I remember there's this kid that came in. He was like maybe like 12 or 13 years old. Every day he came in, okay? And he had a skateboard, you know, and this long kind of like unkempt hair and his clothes were like wrinkly. And I thought, that kid is up to no good. And I remember thinking that, you know, where's this kid's parents? I mean, don't they know he's running the streets? Don't they know, I mean, that this kid's like, you know, in Starbucks all the time? I mean, wait a minute, how, how does he have the money to come to Starbucks all the time? I barely have enough money to come to Starbucks. I bet he's one of those kids that's in trouble, and I bet he's stealing and cheating. And, and I had this kid sized up, you know, from the moment I met him, or from the moment I saw him there at Starbucks. And over the course of the week, I just kind of kept, like, playing this thing over my head. And I was judging him from my religious perspective. Well, one afternoon... While I was there, the kid came in, but he brought a friend, and they sat at the way back table. And so before I had to leave, I had to go to the restroom, so I had to go walk by their, their, their table where they were sitting. And, um, and I was already ready to think the worst, like, okay, now there's two of them, right? Now there's two. They're going to start a little gang right here, right? You know, they're probably plotting some evil deeds. And, and then something happened, because as I got closer, I could see that this kid was reading something, okay? And I got closer still, and I came face-to-face with my own hypocrisy, because I realized this kid was reading his Bible to this other kid. And he was sharing his faith in Jesus with his friend. 
And so this kid that I thought the worst of was a Christian doing exactly what I should have been doing. He was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I had this image of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I had these rules that I imagined that someone had to kind of follow to be, to be a follower of Jesus. And my faith became about religion instead of what it was supposed to be. It's about relationships with people and God. And, 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 and so in these stories here, okay, that Jesus, what he's dealing with, he's dealing with this tendency in all of us to want to follow rules rather than engaging in a relationship. Because rules are easy. Let's be honest. Rules are easy. Relationships are messy. Rules give you this kind of sense of clear boundaries. Relationships are flexible and nebulous. Obeying rules makes it easy for me to write a checklist and go, I did that, I did that, I did that. Following Jesus, though, means trusting Him enough to let go of our need for a checklist and, 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 and let go of our need for regulations. You see, for, for God, it never has been about the rules. It has always been about the relationship. Because we can't keep all the rules. It's absolutely impossible. That's why God came to earth and died for our sins. You know, He fulfills the righteous requirements of the law You know, for us. Not so we can obey a bunch of rules. Not that we can be religious. He came and He died for us so we can have a relationship with Him. That's the gospel. Now look into this story. How do we take away something and apply it to our own lives? How do we use this you know, in a way that grows us a little more into the image of Christ? Well, the first thing that you have to realize is that Jesus is not saying in all of this, He is not saying that the, the Sabbath is, is not important. Okay? Not once did He ever say the Sabbath is not important or irrelevant. In fact, as an example, Jesus was faithful to observe the Sabbath every week. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Well, I mean, we're not Jews. I mean, we're not Messianic Jews. We're Gentile Christians. Well, even that, and we're not even bound by the Jewish ceremonial law. God, but God still expects us. God still expects us to take some time and rest. He still expects us to take time and build relationship. God expects us to take time from our normal labors and connect with Him. He wants us to do this, and not because we're fulfilling some rules. He wants us to do this because it's good for us, and it honors Him. When we take time to rest our body, and we take time to connect with God, it draws us close to Him. When we take time to grow in our relationship with other people, especially other believers, that is good for us, and it honors Him. Can you see that? You see, that's why we come to church. That's why we come here together to worship. We take time off. We connect with God and connect with other believers because it's good for us and it honors Him. We don't do it because it's a rule. We don't do it because you know we're trying to be obedient to a bunch of regulations. We do it because it's good and it's honoring to God for us to do it. Now the second thing we need to take from this is as we walk with God and follow Him, we must be mindful that it's about relationships with Him and not a set of regulations. Now, with that in mind, we still should absolutely strive for holiness. We absolutely should strive for holiness, to walk in that holiness that God has for us. Holiness is something that we should take seriously. Why? Because holiness is good for us, and it's honoring to Him. Can I see the pattern? 
See, we're not called to obey the rules because of some rules. We obey because it's good for us and it's right for us and it honors God. And in the process, we're drawn closer into a deeper relationship with Him as we become more and more obedient. But understand, once we make it about rules, once we make it about regulations, in order to prove our worthiness, we have lost something. Because it's never has been and never will be about rules and regulations. It's always about the relationship that we have in Christ Jesus. And the final thing that should, should change in us is that it should cause us to walk humbly. This should cause us to be humble before God and humble before other people because it's about relationships and not some checklist that I can keep so I can see my progress to prove that I'm better than someone else. I'm even more dependent now on the Holy Spirit to guide me I'm even more dependent now on the grace of God to cover me and my shortcomings. And so because of that then, I have nothing to point to that demonstrates that I'm superior to anyone else. I must be humble and gracious with other people. I must be forgiving and loving. I must continually willing to share and tell people it's not about the rules it's, or religion. It's about a relationship through faith. With Jesus Christ, and that is all. Yes, I will tell them the truth about holiness. Because we all should strive for that. But not because I'm holy. But because that's good for them. And it's God honoring for them. Can you see the difference? Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, helps us to see that following Him and being like Him has never, ever, ever, ever been and never will be about religion and following rules. It's about a deep, connected relationship with Him and with other people. And that is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We need to remove all the garbage that gets in the way of that and keep our eyes fixed on Him and remember every day that He is the Lord. And He allows us to have a relationship with Him. So we need to walk in that relationship with Him. So, for your homework this week, I just want to help you guys walk in that relationship. I want, to, I want you to take some time this week and just kind of get alone with God. And that could be at your house, or it could be in your car, at your office, or wherever you work, maybe at school. Just take some time and get alone with God for like 10 minutes. And while you're doing that, just take some time to ask Him, you know, God, show me, you know, how trying to follow rules gets in the way of my relationship with you. Show me how, you know, following rules gets in the way of my relationship with other people. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, inside your bulletin, there's a prayer that you can use. Okay? If for some reason you just can't figure out what to pray, you can actually look at that. I mean, they're, they're not magical words. They're just sincere, sincere words. And, and it goes like this. It says, Lord, where in my life do I let the rules get in the way of my relationship with you? And where do I let the rules get in the way of my relationship with others? Lord, help me to put away my tendency to focus on rule-keeping and help me focus on following you in a deep relationship. And, and if that means walking in holiness, then help me to walk in holiness. And if that means walking in grace, then help me to walk in grace. Help me to be conformed this week a little more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And help me to be that living image of Christ, the Jesus that you're calling me to be. So just take some time this week and just pray that prayer. And, and whatever you feel God leads you to do in this, submit to Him and follow Him this week and grow a little more into that living image of Jesus right here in our community. So let me just pray for you. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for your word. 
And I thank you, Lord God, that you haven't made it about rules and regulation because I can, I'm going to fail at that. As much as I like to think that I'm doing good or that I'm pious or that, 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 you know, that I've got it all together and I'm better than someone else, I realize there's some other area I'm falling short, so I can't do it. And I, I thank you that it's about relationships. I thank, I thank you that you've rescued me, not because of my merit, because of, but because of Jesus' merit. And all I did was just place my trust in Him. And that's what our brothers and sisters in Christ do. They place their trust in Jesus. And so let us not be condemning. Let us not be judgmental. Let us be encouraging and loving to our fellow believers. And let us go out in the world and be encouraging and loving as well. And help us to, to share the hope and the healing of Jesus and point that relationship to other people. Help us to tear down this image that people have of Christians of being self-righteous hypocrites. And help us to be what you called us to be, the image of Jesus Christ. I just pray that you would raise up in this congregation a people who love you and are passionate for you. And that, Lord, that you would, you would use these people to transform the community and the world. And I thank you. I give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world. Thank you.